Uh, we're going to be looking at passage, um, we're going to look at Acts 13, 1 through 3, and then we're going to jump all the way down to four, chapter 14, verses 19 through 28, okay? And so uh, we're just kind of looking at this story because there's there's a little bit of a, we get a, a, a general feel for kind of um, some of the things that we've been talking about and we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, so starting in 13, verse 1. It says, now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then... When they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they set them on the way. All right, now flip over to 14, down in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. And the next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed." They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. Uh, and when they had spoken uh, the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah. From there, they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door to faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, uh, we ask that um, as we look at your word, um, as we um, talk about these these ideas of eldership and what you have called us to in terms of leadership in the church, that you would help us to um, pick up on the things that, that you have um, shown us in your word, God. Um, in some of these questions that we have, um, there are not maybe um, answers um, as full as we would like them. Um, but God, we pray that the things that you have shown us in our, your word um, would be be um, applied to our thoughts about these issues, and that through these things that we would um, see and know and obey you rightly. God, help us to do that um, as we read your word and as we study it and as we apply it to the life of our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so again, we've been talking about elders, right? And we've talking about um, this process of of um, finding and and uh, affirming and and sort of this whole process of what an elder looks like and what he does and all these different things, right? Well, so this this today we're, we're talking about the actual process of of. In installing elders, you could say, but but we're zooming in on a little bit of a specific idea, right? And that is this idea of urgency, but not haste. Okay, um, and and obviously what we're getting at there is this: is that as we read the scriptures and as we're going to see in some of these passages, there is an urgency to the um, to getting elders 
eldering, right? Um, there is an urgency to have leadership in the church who begins to, to um, lead and to teach and to minister and all these things like that. Um, but at the same time, that urgency can't be hasty, right? That urgency can't be to the point where you say, man, we just got to get somebody in here and, and, and to do this thing because that can cause more problems than, than we um, intend for it to, all right? And so as we talk about this question, um, the truth is, is that when we look at the New Testament, it's a little bit vague as to how some of these things come about, right? Like what the actual proper process is for us um, to, to um, go about in, Installing elders into a church, okay? Um, it's it's it, the qualifications, as we've noticed, are, are there's a lot of stuff about qualifications, but then when it comes to this process, like how it actually looks, we don't see a ton of places in the scripture that just give us straightforward commands on how to do that. Um, what we do see, though, in several places, is sort of models for how to do that. We watch the the disciples and people like that doing similar things in the New Testament, and so we go. Okay, well, maybe that's the way that this is supposed to, to happen. There's a, there's a principle in, in theology called the regulative principle, okay? And what the regulative principle, the idea there is that if, if the Bible doesn't tell you to do something, then you shouldn't do it, okay? Which the opposite of that is kind of say, as long as the Bible doesn't forbid you from doing something, then it's okay to do it, right? So those are kind of these two philosophies of ministry that have come down through the history of the church, right? And so what we want to do is being people who are, are, are tending towards that idea of the regulative principle, right? We want to look to the scriptures to find um, the examples of how to do these things. And even places that don't give us specific guidelines that we would still look to a general kind of picture about, about what we see in the scriptures on these things, okay? And so certainly we can glean a few principles about um, calling and, and nominating and confirming and ordaining elders um, from, from the scriptures. And the first thing we see is, again, that sense of urgency that we've talked about, right? So as these churches are being formed in the New Testament, there's this need for leadership, right? Especially teaching leadership. And so and an expectation um, that there's an expectation there that somebody would step into that position, right? So if you, if, if Paul goes into a uh, city and evangelizes and some people believe. And so now you've got a church um, until th- there's an expectation that the Holy Spirit will work in such a way that it will call somebody in to leadership there. that Somebody will step up into that position. Right. That takes us to this place that we see in the book of Acts. Right. Acts chapter 13. Acts 13 and 14 is is the recounting of what is typically referred to as Paul's first missionary journey. Okay, and so you, if you've got a Bible that has backs, uh, backs, if you've got a, I hope your Bible has a back, um, if you've got a Bible that has maps in it, um, if you go to that map in the back, right, there's probably going to be this map of Paul's three missionary journeys, okay, and so you can kind of see the path that he took. So one of those, the first missionary journey, is basically Paul's trip first to the, the island of Cyprus, and then to to Asia, Central Asia Minor, which is modern day um, Central Turkey. Okay, and so he just kind of hits the island, goes up and makes a little loop, retraces his steps, and comes back down. And we see a couple things happening on this this journey. Okay, first off, at the beginning, we see Paul and Barnabas in something similar to the uh, being appointed to elder work. Okay, so it's not exactly the same because it. it As we read that passage, we recognize that Paul and Barnabas are already acknowledged teachers within the congregation there in Antioch. 
All right. And so it's not exactly the same, but there is this process. Well, what happens is the other elders who are in the church, the other teachers, the other men who have been um, singled out as the teachers in the church, that they acknowledge and they appoint and they commission Paul and Barnabas to go and do this specific um, missionary endeavor. All right. And so notice again what happens in the passage. And this is something that um, I, I, I want us to zoom in on as we go through this process. Look at Acts 13, chapter 2. Notice what is happening around this time when they are calling um, Barnabas and Saul um, to, this, to this kind of leadership. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, right, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, so again, you can you can tell already it's a little different than the things that we've been talking about over the weeks, because in this case, the Holy Spirit seems to specifically um, uh, uh, conspicuously, you could say audibly, possibly even call out. Um, Paul and Barnabas, okay? And so that's not something that we should expect every time, right? The Holy Spirit isn't going to open the sky and speak to us about every one of these decisions like that. But notice what was happening around the decision um, for who to send, right? There was prayer and there was fasting going on, right? It was in the context of those things, both before the decision had been made and once the decision had been made, sort of a prayer and fasting to ask God to work and bless and confirm and, and make these things um, go well. When we talked about it the other Sunday, this this calling idea, right, um, this is one of these... I, I, I keep on worrying that people are going to think that as we talked about those issues that we were saying, well, the Holy Spirit isn't a part of this thing, right? At least this is just a decision that you make to go into uh, to ministry or eldership or take a position of leadership in the church. And that's not what I'm saying at all, okay? The Holy Spirit is at work in all of these things, but but it is a normal process. But at the same time, we should be seeking the Holy Spirit in these things, right? We should be calling out to the Holy Spirit through prayer, through fasting, and saying, would you confirm these things in us, right? Um, if there's a person who we say, God, this person has stepped forward for leadership. They seem to be qualified for leadership, and we, we, we think that they would be a good fit for leadership. We're not just going to ignore the Holy Spirit and, and God and say, well, we're just going to do this thing on our own, right? We're going to be calling out to God saying, God, is this right? Are we making the right decision? Would you please confirm this in us? And, 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 and God does that in all kinds of different ways, right? There's a, there can be just sort of a, a peace that, that comes and where we go, yeah, I think we're doing the right thing. Um, sometimes he can, Make us aware of red flags, right? Or he can make us aware of open doors and, and green lights, and things just kind of end up working out or whatever. Um, but that's the context of it. So as we pursue these things, right, as the opportunity arises where there are certain men who are maybe stepping forward um, to be candidates for, for leadership in our church, right, we want that to be um, surrounded by prayer and fasting, right? These are decisions that are, are weighty and significant, and like we said a minute ago, we don't want to make the wrong decision about those things. And so we ask God through the Holy Spirit to confirm these things in our lives and in the life of our church. So Paul and Barnabas are confirmed in that way. And so they are entrusted to God um, and they are sent out into, like we said, this, this tour of Central um, Asia Minor. And so they go to Antioch and they go to Iconium and they go to Lystra and they go to Derby. And on the first ring through, the first tour through, it seems like their practice is basically just to evangelize the city. So as they go through these new cities, they just 
tell the gospel. And they probably do that the same way we see Paul doing that in other places in the New Testament. He goes maybe to the synagogues a lot of times first. He goes to different kinds of forums where people are talking about religious and theological and, and philosophical kinds of ideas. And he, and he speaks these things in those contexts. But it seems like his first trip is evangelistic, right? Okay, and then what we find is that when he gets to the end of that 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 track and he gets beat up, um, the, the the people mob him in the city and beat him up, and he decides it's time to go back. He goes back through those same cities, and the and the scriptures tell us in in verse um, twenty two it says he was strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, right? Probably pointing to his own face and bruises and and cuts to say, see, this is what happens if you want to be a Christian, right? Look at me. But then notice in verse 23, it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed, right? So again, what do we see? We see as Paul comes back through these cities, he says, Guys, You've had a little time to be believers now. You've had a little time to um, sort of get together as a community of faith. And I'm going to leave now, and we've got to have some people in place who are going to take responsibility for you. Okay? We've got to place some elders in, in the life of this church. Notice a couple things. Um, one, there's a little bit of time that's gone by, right? So he didn't just walk into town and evangelize and be like, oh, new believer, you want to be a leader? Like, that didn't happen. There was at least a little bit of time before before he came back. Now, again, we would look at that and go, yeah, but not much time, Ash, right? I mean, it couldn't have been more than, at the most, maybe a few months, right? But, but probably even less than that, probably um, weeks, okay? Is that really enough time um, to, to, to call elders out of, out of this group, especially when they're new believers. Um, it may be the case that if Paul is addressing people who are already in the Jewish faith, right, then they kind of got a, a head start, you could say, right? There are already people who are familiar with the word of God and familiar with who God is. And so really all they needed was the gospel. Um, but in terms of a, a certain level of maturity, they were already down the path a little bit. So it might, that might be the case, but, but there's also the case of this. It might be that there aren't people like that. That the people in these congregations are new believers. They are fresh new believers only for a couple of months, and yet God in his providence and provision, he raises up people to be leaders in these places, okay? Knowing that those people are probably going to have lots of difficulties and, and maybe some mess-ups and some false starts and stuff like that. And notice how it says they appointed these elders, and then what does it say? It says... They entrusted them to the to, to God, right, through fasting and prayer again. So they're sort of like, God, we got to leave, and we've got to leave somebody behind to be in leadership, and so we're going to trust that you're going to take care of this situation, and then they go. Um, notice another thing, too, they, they appoint elders in the churches, right? There's more than one of them, right? They don't just pick one. They pick multiple elders for these congregations. Um, notice a third thing. This is pretty significant for this us talking about the process of eldership, okay? It's Paul and Barnabas who appoint the elders. Okay? Um, it, there, there's not an election process, right? These elders are appointed by the people who are closest to elders in the existing church. Okay? That's significant in the way we understand this whole process, okay? We see the same kind of thing going on in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. When we read those qualifications for elders in Titus 1, chapter 5, 
Paul said this at the beginning of that section. He said, this is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Right In that case, Titus is the one going to the different towns on the island of Crete and appointing elders to these positions. Okay. Paul had evangelized and established these churches, but for some reason, in, in Titus's case, he had left before he could um, have time to appoint elders, and so he leaves Titus behind to do that work. But again, Titus is the one who appoints them, right? He doesn't say, hey, as a democratic function of the church, you guys figure out who you want your leaders to be and then put that person forward. That's not what happens. Titus, who is the de facto missionary elder person in the congregation, is the one who appoints. Okay. Now, why? Why should that be the case? Because I'm going to bet there is a sense in which we might go, I don't know if I like that, right? Being a democratic people and, 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 and all those kind of ideas that come into that. I don't know if I like the idea of a small group of people, in some cases maybe even one person, being the one who nominates um, and, and appoints elders for the church. Okay. So why is that the case? Well, a few reasons. First off, it's what we see happening in various places in Scripture, right? And so that's the first thing that we, we say about it, is we go, I'm not sure, it goes back to that regulative principle idea, right? Um, we don't see a command to do things this way in the Scripture, but we do see people doing it this way in the Scripture, right? So the elders who are there are the ones who nominate and appoint these other elders. That's the first thing, okay? So we do it because we see that as the example set in the Scriptures, okay? Two, um, existing elders already bear the responsibility of, of oversight and, and pastoral care of the congregation, right? And so let's take our situation, for example. We've got one elder, and that's me, okay? And God has entrusted me with the care of you guys, okay? So who would be a, a, a more appropriate person to appoint other carers, other pastors, other overseers for you than the person who has already been entrusted with caring for you in the first place, right? All right, so, so that's, that's part of it. A third reason is that the existing elders are the people who are in a position to know and see the qualifications of, of men who might be potential candidates best, all right? So again, for example, this is a weird way to say it. I know a lot about some of y'all. OK, um, I know more about some of y'all than some of the people who are sitting next to you. know, Right. Um, because, again, I have this pastoral relationship with you. Right. So I've had lots of conversations with some of you that you have not had with lots of other people. OK, so then it makes sense that because I am probably more likely to know about certain aspects of your life that I would be a better person to say, yeah, that person is in a position where they could um Potentially be an elder. Moreover, since I'm kind of the, since I'm the overseer again of, of, of the group, and so I'm, I'm looking at the way other people are serving, like I know so and so serves in this capacity, and so and so serves in this capacity, and so and so does this, and so and so has been active in this, and so and so has been faithful in this, like I'm the person who probably sees all of the pieces moving. Um, more than anybody else, right? So probably the case is, is that the elders are going to be the people in position to know whether or not somebody is is um, best living up to the qualifications of being an elder, okay? 
Moreover, I'm the best person in many cases, though not the only person, but maybe the best person to see disqualifications in people, right? Because again, I know a lot about you. Um, if you have come to me and said, Ash, I got a problem. I'm cheating on my wife. Okay. And it's wrong. And I don't want to do that anymore. And I, and I need to deal with that issue. Okay. Then cool. Now I know something about you that nobody else knows about you. And I also know that one of the qualifications for being an elder is to be a husband of one wife, right? To be a faithful husband. So I'm looking at this going, I know something about you that nobody else knows. And I know that that thing, at least right now, disqualifies you from eldership. But the rest of y'all may not know that. And then you may be looking at that person going, oh, he's such a good guy. And he's such a sacrificial, servant-hearted kind of guy. He should be an elder. Why are we making that person an elder? He should be an elder. And obviously, I'm not going to come up in the pulpit and say, well, the reason is because he's an adulterer, right? I'm not going to advertise that. So I know something that makes me privy to information that would be a good reason to um, put that authority in in the position of the elders, okay? Um, Four or five, whichever one we're on. If we see um, this position of eldership is primarily servant Oriented and not just prestige oriented, right? Like we're not just like going, hey, that guy's a, a good guy. I want to make him, you know, uh, have a position of authority and respect in the church or whatever. If we're saying, no, you're stepping into this position to be a servant to the rest of the congregation, right? Um, then guess what? That means I'm probably the person who most wants that to be true about people. Because you know what I'm looking for? I'm looking for people to share the load, okay? I'm looking for people to come alongside me and go, yeah, I will take some of this ministerial task. I will take some of the weight and the burden, and I will and I will take that off of you, right? So I'm not looking at a congregation going, ah, that dude's a good dude. You know, he'd be a cool guy to, to, to get to stand up in front of everybody once in a while and wear a suit, you know, or whatever. Like, that's not what's going on. I'm looking for somebody who I go... He's solid, and he's living it out, and I could hand him something, and he could do it well, right? And I wouldn't have to do it anymore, right? And that would be helpful for me in terms of ministry. And so I'm the the existing elders, since they are the ones already serving, they are probably the ones who are looking for somebody to serve um, and would be less likely to just pick somebody who didn't fit those qualifications, okay? Now... Having said all that, does that mean that the congregation has no role in the recommendation of elders? And the answer is no. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, but I think the deal is, is that the role of the congregation is, is less formal, you could say. Okay. And so I think what will happen in the life of the church as people begin to, to serve and to lead and to stand out in terms of leadership and service and things like that, the congregation will notice. Right? Just naturally. Um, and at any point... Um, a person, an individual could come to the existing elders or existing elder and say, hey, man, you know, I feel like this person would do a great job at that. Right. They seem to be living in such a way that would match with being an elder. They're serving and loving and ministering in these things. Um, and, you know, they're doing a great job with X, Y, Z. And I think they would make a great elder or a deacon in, in, in whatever case we're talking about. Um, that isn't an official nomination. Right. Um, that, 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 that's not the best way to go about it, right? To say anybody can kind of step forward and say, I nominate this person officially to be an elder. But it is sort of like an informal kind of nomination because if enough people start noticing that, then it might be more uh, in, encouragement on my side to go, yeah, I've noticed these t- things too, and I'm watching that person extra closely now um, to see if they are living out um, the characteristics that would be seen in an elder, okay? And so... 
the congregation still has a voice in these things. And we'll see in a minute, they don't just have a voice, but they also have a responsibility towards these things too. All right. So to kind of sum up what I just said. So we see a sense of urgency in to put pastoral leadership in place, um, preferably a plurality of elders, right? Multiple people who are serving in that function. And that those nominations tend to come from the existing elders, although the congregation has a voice. Okay, cool. Um, so, so we have that sense of urgency, but there's a balance to that sense of urgency too. We want to be diligent about all of these things, right? But that sense of urgency can't be hasty, right? We can't just say, man, um, I, I, we, we got to just get somebody in here to do some of this, this stuff or some of this ministry, right? And so we want to be urgent, but we want to not be hasty. You see that in a variety of things. For one, we've already talked about it. You see it in the fact that the Bible says don't, um, ordain new believers to the job of elder, right? Um, that's, you don't want to put people who are, who have just become Christians into that role typically because there's just too many problems that come along with it. There's arrogance that comes along with it. There is, is resentment on the part of, of, of the congregation and different things. Like in general, do you want there to be some time for Testing and examination and seeing if this person is living up um, to uh, to to the responsibilities that would be incumbent upon a elder. All right. Potential elders should be given opportunities um, to see see how they deal with those situations. Right. Given opportunities for in in terms of eldership to teach, um, given opportunities in terms of. Um, serving and overseeing to manage and, and, and organize and different things like that, right? We see these things happening in, in the qualifications, right? In 1 Timothy chapter 3, when he's talking about deacons, he says, let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they can, if they prove themselves blameless, right? So it says, don't just like throw somebody into the role of deacon. They need to go through some kind of testing. We can assume that that is true of elders as well. Um, give people opportunities to serve in small ways, then greater ways, then formal kind of ways, right? Um, but the issue is more blatantly dealt with in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And it's, and it's great the way, um, Paul says it to Timothy. He says this, Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. All right? Now, here's the cool thing. So some people read that passage and you're like, what's going on there? What's he talking about? The laying on of hands is a reference to the ordination process, right? That's what happens when the Bible gives us this picture. When you ordain somebody into pastoral eldership overseer, right, the existing elders come along and lay hands on that person, right? And there's a, there's a symbolism there of a transference of leadership and authority and, and the Holy Spirit and, and these things that, that, that's, that's symbolized there, right? Paul, writing to Timothy, says, don't be hasty in laying hands on other people. And so some people have read that passage and be like, is he talking about like fighting? Like, I'm going to lay hands on you, right? Like, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the ordination process, okay? And he says, don't be hasty in doing that. And then notice this. He says, nor take part in the sins of others, okay? That, tra- that, that passage is a little weird in terms of its translation. The NASB, I think, is better in the way we understand it because it says it like this. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility 
responsibility for the sins of others. Okay, And so what's the idea there? The idea is this. If, if there are sins that are going to be destructive to the life of the church in an individual's life, right, and we too hastily call that person into leadership, and then those sinful behaviors play themselves out in the life of the church and cause destructive uh, patterns and influence, then what have we done? The Bible is saying that we are responsible for that, right? It's not just that guy's sin now. It's all of our sin, right? We have have been culpable in this thing. Why? Because we didn't properly vet that person, right? We were too hasty in our decision, and now that has led to all these other problems, right? And so he says, don't share in the responsibility of other people's sins by laying hands on them too hastily. Keep yourself pure. Keep yourself free from sin. Um, it may not be an ideal situation to just have one elder in a church, right? But it is a better situation than to have multiple elders that you got hastily, and yet they are have got some big problems in 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 their life and leadership that are going to cause larger problems in the church, okay? And so one way that we can keep that from happening is being diligent about the qualifications, right? We have this list of qualifications that we've already talked about. Be diligent about saying, man, people need to be these kind of people if they're going to be in leadership in the church. Um, they need to match up with those those things. And by giving them a time of testing, right? Don't just throw people into something that they've never done um, and hope that it works out good. See if these things actually um, play out in their lives, okay? Now, uh, let's kind of let's kind of cl- close it up. Um, what about the actual process of kind of confirming them? All right. So, so if I'm an elder and I nominate uh, Joe Schmo and he's going to be, I want him to be our new elder in the church. And I say, man, I've been watching Joe Schmo. He's doing great. Um, man of character, living biblically, um, serving in various places, um, loving and caring for people, already doing the jobs of pastor and overseer um, informally. And so, I think that would be a great. He would be a great candidate for um, being an elder. Um, even though it is the elder who is nominating the person, I think it is both practical and theological to say that the congregation must confirm that person in terms of their eldership. Okay, And so I think that's true theologically, for one, because of what we talked about, if you remember, way back when we talked about our Began Our Covenant series and we talked about this idea that God has made us in his image, and as those who have been saved by Christ, every single one of us has a responsibility in the church, right, to be under prophets, under priests, under kings, under the the ultimate kingship of Jesus Christ, right? And so all of us are responsible in these certain ways at a a non-official level. And so every one of us bears a certain theological, you could say, responsibility for the life and leadership of the church. Even if you are not the leader of the church, you still bear responsibility for affirming and confirming um, the person who is the leader, right? But then there's a practical, a very practical reason, too, because that's just the consent of the governed. You ever heard that phrase? The consent of the governed is just a thing, Okay, Um, if you have leadership in your life that you don't like and aren't willing to follow, then they're not going to be a very good leader. Right. And so if I were to nominate Joe Schmo and say, man, I think Joe Schmo has got it going on and he's just he's a great guy and everybody should get behind him. And like two thirds of y'all go, man, Joe Schmo's just not the guy. 
And I don't know exactly why he's not the guy. Yeah, he's a faithful husband, and, and yeah, he's been doing all these things. But man, there's just something about Joe that is, that is not right, okay? Then that would be a sign to me to say, cool. Then I don't think we should put Joe in there yet, right? Because if two-thirds of y'all are obviously saying you're not interested in following him, then something's wrong. And I don't know what that is. Maybe it's on y'all. Right. Could be y'all's problem. You could just have a grudge against somebody. Right. Or you could just you. this could be some sort of just prejudice or whatever. Could be on my part. Could be that I'm not seeing Joe for who he really is. Could be on Joe's part. He could be hiding things and being two different people to two different two different groups. Right. I don't know what the problem is, but something's wrong, because if I say this guy's great and you guys say, "Uh, I don't think so, then we've got an issue. And so you have a responsibility to do that, too. Um, as we put people into um, positions of leadership. So I think it is necessary for the congregation to confirm current elders in terms of their eldership. And again, that may not look like an actual vote. Okay, Lots of churches do it that way, and that may be the best way to do it. I don't know. Um, I think for sure at least we see it in two different ways. One, it comes through that casual nomination process where you go, I've been watching this guy, and I think he would be a good person for this. And then it also comes when essentially what would happen is I would say, I'm, I'm nominating this person for eldership, and, and but we're not going to install him into eldership or ordain him until three months down the road, right? And in that gap, that would be an opportunity for the congregation, probably in the context of a business meeting or a member meeting, but certainly in private conversations with me for somebody to come up and say, man, I don't think so, Ash. Um, I happen to know something about this person that maybe you're not privy to, and uh, we need to have a conversation about that, right? And so what happens is then over sort of a natural process, then something might come up and I might come back to Joe and say, hey, Joe, turns out you're a crackhead, right, or something, right? And I didn't know, right? Um, I had no idea you were addicted to crack. And so we should probably deal with that first, right, before you become an elder in the church, okay? And Joe hopefully will say, yeah, man, you're right. Um, I, I, I need to deal with that before I, I step into this position of leadership. And then we would move on, right? And we would go about the process again. And maybe somebody else would come forward and, and, and be somebody who would be nominated to eldership or maybe, um, down the road, Joe would repent and and deal with those issues in his life and be in a position again where he could be in that in nominated, right? And so that's kind of the process that we're looking about. Again, there's lots of little details about how all these things come together in the life of the church that are that are um, there's a lot of wiggle room for, right? The Bible doesn't give us specific commands about you know hey, you need a two thirds vote with a you know it doesn't do that, right? These are just kind of things that we decide and go. This is wisdom. This is a good way to do it. This is how we want to be assured about these things. Um, but again, what I want you to do as we kind of finish up talking about elders, because this is the last this is the last message on elders. We're going to do one on deacons in about four weeks because we're going to have a little break for for Pentecost and Trinity Sunday, where we sort of talk about different subjects. We're going to hit deacons, um, and then. We'll see what happens, right? I don't know what that's going to look like in the life of our church. Um, I, I want there to be some urgency about it. Like, I think I, I want it to be something that's on our minds, okay? I don't want it to be something that we go, oh, cool, Ash preached about elders that one time, and then we just went about our business and forgot about it, you know, and nobody thinks about it anymore, right? That's not what I want to happen. I want it to be something that we are holding out there in front of us going, yeah, what about elders, what about elders in the church? What about other people um, to come alongside Ash and leadership? What about that? Um, is there anybody who's in that position right now? And the answer might be no, 
And if that's the case, then we go, cool, we're not going to be hasty. We're not just going to throw somebody under the bus in this thing, right? We're just, but we're going to keep it out front. We're going to keep on thinking about these things and see what happens down the road. I ask that you would do this. One, that you would be praying about it, and I've said that every week in this process. Uh, what I want to also ask you to, and, and I know that this is probably something that is, that is outside the norm for many of us, but I, I would ask that maybe you would pray and fast about it, okay? Not just pray, but fast about it too. And I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe that you would pick a day out of the week and say, you know what I'm going to do? As part of my prayer routine for this day, I'm going to fast this day too. Um, and, and I'm going to um, dedicate this time to prayer in general, but certainly to prayer for the leadership of our church, right? And then especially as we get closer to the time, if, if in the near future we have somebody who is a, is a candidate for eldership, I'm going to ask us all to do that, right? I'm going to ask us to say, I want us all to pray and fast over this decision. If this is the right decision, um, if it's what God is leading us to, or if, if we need to look a different direction, okay? And so maybe would you do that? Would you just sort of pray um, and maybe even take time to pray and fast um, about these issues and leadership in our church in the coming weeks and months. And maybe it becomes a regular part of your week. Maybe you do it once a month. I, you know, I'll leave that between you and God. All right. But um, I encourage you to to think and care. Don't just have this thing in your head where you sort of say, cool, elders, that's somebody else's deal, right? I'm, I'm not, um, I don't feel like I'm called to be an elder or, or God's putting me in that position. Uh, I'll let other people deal with that. No, you be responsible for it, right? Be responsible for your part as a member of this body and a member of this congregation, okay? Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just kind of ask him for those things. Um, and then uh, our musicians will come up and we'll be closed. Father God, we want to be faithful. Uh, we want to, we see in your word, we see these, these um, practices and these models set forth for us. God, we recognize that there's a, a, lot of, um, a lot of wiggle room here on some of these things about the actual process that comes, but we want to be faithful to you. Um, it's pretty clear that you want your church to have elders. It is pretty clear that you want those elders to be um, um, God called to um, leadership by the existing elders. God, it's pretty clear um, that we as a congregation are responsible um, not only for confirming those people, but then following them, right? Um, then living our lives in such a way where we acknowledge their leadership over us in terms of the, of the life of the church. Um, in all these things, God, we just want to be faithful. We want to do things the way you have called us to do. We want things to um, be done in a way that honors you and that um, facilitates um, ministry and caring for people and loving people and the leadership that you have called the church to. God, help us to do that. Give us a sense of urgency, God, and yet let us continue to fall back on all these, all these qualifications, all of these um, different things that we've talked about over the last few weeks um, that would point us to the right kind of candidate for um, this task. Um, God, we, we submit humbly to your leadership. 
Uh, we know that you are the great shepherd. You are the great pastor. You are the great elder. You are the great overseer. You are the one who we are coming alongside in, in uh, co-leadership um, and co-shepherding um, in this work. So as we seek to shepherd here, Father, we ask that you would continue to shepherd us in this process. Um, we thank you. We praise you for all of your mercy and grace. Um, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.